evening, everyone. Welcome to the uh, July 15, 2019 meeting of the Astoria City Council. Uh, roll call. Uh, Chief Rusher. Councilor Herman? Here. Councilor Brownson? Here. Councilor West? Here. Councilor Rocca? Here. And Mayor Jones? Here. Uh, we're going to begin tonight with a presentation. We have uh, Mr. Michael McNichol from the uh, Public Health Director Clatsop County, and I believe uh, Julia Nessa is also here. Yes. The health promotion specialist. And I notice we have uh, County Commissioner Webb here. Yes. Thanks for joining us. So please say that she's here. Uh, thank you. I'm Mike McNichol, Clatsop County Public Health Director. I'm Julia Hess, um, health promotion specialist. Thank you. And so tonight, I'm not sure if that's on or not. Yeah. Oh, the lights on. So lights on. Okay. Yeah, you, you may have to get a little closer. Speak into it. You can even hold it if you like. How <laughs> about that? Is that closer? Yeah, it's closer. There we go. Can you hear me now? Okay. Okay, that's better. So tonight, uh, Julie and I want to talk to you about uh, tobacco retail licensing in the city of Astoria. A little background. Uh, starting in about early 2018. Uh, we started working on tobacco retail licensing as a fundamental way to deal with the Tobacco 21 law. After Tobacco 21 was passed uh, in early 2018, the state passed that uh, authority down to this level, the county level to actually do the enforcement to make sure no one under the age of 21 could get tobacco or tobacco products. So we've been working on that ever since about how we were going to do that enforcement piece. And Julie and her team have been doing a great job going around and actually doing retail assessments, uh, talking to the schools and all kinds of things. But uh, so we're here today. What's the May have to just manually use the, uh, the arrow to scroll, maybe. Sometimes if you just hit the right arrow, the bottom right, like uh, this is me giving computer advice. That's pretty funny. <laughs> oh, there you, go. you can go to the next one. There is the next one. this through anyway. So the idea here is uh, tobacco retail licensing while we're working on our technical difficulties. The basic idea is to make sure that all the folks who sell retail tobacco to people who are over 21 uh, have a license. And so we would want to, what we're really looking for is to make sure that we license every retailer in the entire county. Otherwise, if we have some who are licensed in Cannon Beach, but they're not in Astoria, that's a fairness issue, and also that we can have people still buying those across up from north to south. Um, the uh, retail licensing has been proven to be an excellent way to enforce Tobacco 21. We did uh, send out a packet of information, as you can see, that the uh, it's up to 88% of the time that uh, students can get access to the tobacco products. Not 88, but, it but it's high. In, so, in Clatsop County, it's federally throughout the 
country, uh, it takes students one in 10 times to be able to purchase tobacco. Their retail license in Clatsop County is one in five. So we, we have a much higher rate of sales through our retail establishments. So the retail licensing program would actually would entail that in early in uh, 2020, uh, the program if adopted at the city of Astoria, this public health department would license these folks, they pay an annual fee, which means that we would do inspections twice a year to make sure that they're actually not having selling tobacco under 21 and that they're actually doing the way they're supposed to market their products so there's not a way that's being attracted to kids and some other things that we're trying to do. Because we've also found that, as you know, we had the article in the newspaper recently about the vaping uh, epidemic that's going on in the county. Um, and so this is also going to control the vaping products for those under 21 as well. And we can actually start controlling some of the use of the school, hopefully. So that's basically what we wanted to show, but unfortunately we had a lot of detail in our presentation. So uh, did they get a packet of that? You should have it in your packet. So. And I can fill in some of the detail if you want. So uh, the basic ask we are looking from the city is after you read that materials is that for us the first step is going to be and uh, we've already spoken to the uh, county commission uh, several times about this project. Uh, we want to make sure the first step will be for us to adopt the ordinance, the tobacco retail licensing ordinance. You have a copy of the draft in your possession uh, that we would adopt that at the county level and then go through that process and then the cities could adopt that by reference so that we have it throughout the entire county so that the cities and the county would all be enforcing that tobacco retail licensing. And that would allow us to go ahead and charge those retailers uh, the $250 fee annually for us to do those inspections. So that's basically what we've come here to present to you to ask to see where you have any questions about that, um, what we can do to, um, what it would take for us to get an endorsement perhaps, not maybe not right now, but certainly if we came back after the county passes an ordinance, would that be this, something the city could do? Because otherwise we'd like to make sure that we tailor the ordinance to something you could pass. Otherwise, you know, we don't want to have, uh, get it passed in the city of Gearhart, but not in the city of Astoria. Yeah, sorry about technical difficulties. It's Murphy's Law. <laughs> One thing I noticed in, in, uh, in the material that we were sent is that uh, apparently a lot of young people have the belief that vaping is totally harmless. Is there is there something that can be done in order to to provide more education in that regard? There is, but as public health, our role is not as much education. We can do some, but what we're funded to do is policy that affects a broader number of people um, than education would, because. Education enough isn't enough to do the job by itself, and a lot of students wouldn't, a lot of teenagers wouldn't believe it anyway. So, and, but you're right, our study, our assessment did, that you all got a copy of, our uh, school assessment showed that a lot of students thought it wasn't dangerous, it wasn't addictive, and um, it's a pretty, the results are pretty amazing. And it's no coincidence that the Juul product is owned by Philip Morris, which is one of the largest tobacco industries. So there always seem to be one step ahead. So we're just trying to catch up with the next, once people get addicted to the vaping product, because you know you have the same amount of nicotine in one Juul pod that you do an entire pack of cigarettes, 
that once they get addicted to that, the next step is, well, that's too expensive to have these pods, why not just smoke cigarettes instead? So they're actually making sure that they have a, an ongoing population that's addicted. So we want to try to see if we can stop this before it becomes another problem in the future. Yeah, we've seen our rates, our youth rates, um, rise exponentially in the last three or four years due to Juul and vaping. Mostly it's Juul. We hesitate to use the brand name because we don't want to promote it, but there it is. And you've probably heard the radio ads on TV on the radio about, you know, it's a, it's a great way to stop smoking, but it's not really. It's never been proven for that or anything like that, so that's... We're again, seeing the same tobacco industry tactics that they're using with vaping and Juul that... Uh, the tobacco industry has used for decades. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that, you know, I've, I've watched these products come out over time, and uh, I can recall when they were first coming out, the people who were, it was people that were smoking that wanted to get away from cigarettes, they were actually <coughs> picking them up pretty fast and trying them out, and there were some pretty mixed results on how that was working. Yeah. And that so was the company's was, selling point. That right. wasn't necessarily people picking it up to try it. That was the company's selling point. Sure, but, but, you, but you saw that happen. And, yeah. and I, I remember initially seeing that as a, a very positive thing because it was getting people off the cigarettes, which are cancer-causing. These, we don't know about all the potential health risks at this point, but you certainly eliminate a lot of uh, carcinogens that are related to cigarettes. Um, but it, but you're right, then you, we've watched them kind of morph over time, or develop over time, expand over time. And I, I did see your presentation that you gave to the uh, county commission, okay. and um, and I was really struck by that. It looks like we have to go back with your stuff, so maybe we can uh, let you carry on here. Oh, sure. So there's Tobacco 21. Um, so we were the fifth state to raise minimum age tobacco. Um, and it's really the interesting one, the second bullet is really the one that we're concerned about, is 95% of smokers start smoking before the age of 21. And so if they have access to these products, of course, then they're going to be addicted before they're 21, and then it's a lifetime struggle. And also the teenage brain is particularly vulnerable to the addictive effects of nicotine. And if you're really interested in seeing how this is affecting the teenage population, if you Google YouTube and go to vaping, you'll see all kinds of crazy things going on with these teens about different you know, challenges and stuff. It's really totally and completely out of control. Uh, this is the goal is to stop the illegal tobacco sales of minors. 12% uh, of the stores in Clatsop County in 2017 when they did one of the uh, round, one of the assessments and did some, uh, uh, what do you call it, decoying, compliance checks that 12% did sell. Um, but uh, one of the, unfortunately, Oregon is one of the easiest states to actually get tobacco products right now. And so that's why we're trying to close the loop with our local effort with tobacco retail licensing. Uh, so uh, vaping, you know, and a lot of people uh, see that 74% can actually, people who, youth who say they use Juul, they're actually getting at a physical retail location 70% of the time, even though they're not really supposed to. So we need to try to stop that. You can see the 6% of the internet, but the vast majority are just going to a store, picking it up, and buying it. And that's 63% uh, of the Juul users don't know that the product always has nicotine, which is the addictive product of cigarettes as well as the vaping product. Um, here's the e-cigarette use triple among youth in Oregon, and this is from the Healthy Teen Survey. 
which is something we do with a lot of our materials we get. We actually do surveys of kids in our schools. And you can see that in Oregon, it jumps like three times more in just one year or two years. Uh, so we actually, our team, led by uh, Julia and Jill Quackenbush, they actually did a, an e-cigarette and vaping use in Clatsop County's public schools. Um, and interestingly enough, we held a meeting with the superintendents not too long ago, about a month and a half ago, right before school was out, and every superintendent said this is out of control in their schools. They don't, and they're stuck about, you know, what do we, what do we need to do, how do we deal with it? They have kids now who, they have products where you can vape where it doesn't make vapor. They have hoodies that you can breathe in one side and breathe out the other side. Uh, they have things that look like lipsticks, but it's actually vaping product. So the schools are struggling with this as well, about you know, what are we gonna do? And they're looking to public health and, and other folks to see what can we do to help them. And this is one of the things we can do is make it so they can't get it. And the Surgeon General said, uh, this is uh, just uh, 2018, not that long ago. I've uh, never seen any substance by America's young people rise as rapidly as e-cigarettes. It's an epidemic. <coughs> so, <laughs> there's our tobacco-friendly people. Uh, so, why make the switch? Uh, they were created to be satisfying alternatives to e-cigarettes. We're talking about vaping. But if you have those uh, tobacco industry leaders right there, uh, who for 40 years said the tobacco was safe and you could smoke cigarettes, do you really trust them? And this is how Juul's getting very popular with the young, is that it's actually being marketed directly to them. And so this is why it's so popular. Uh, similar to, yeah. yeah. So you can see the product, the juice box there, and then the e-cigarette looks just like that juice box. That's not um, on accident, that's on purpose. So, um, so they're being just as crafty as they were in the 1940s and 50s and 60s about how they're marketing to the population that they want to get addicted. Again, uh, some of the same kind of flashy products with bright colors and uh, cool stuff that really attracts the kid's eye. They pick those up and they start using them. And so then uh, the 2018 tobacco and alcohol retail assessment, we did provide that to you in your packet. Um, they, we did, uh, the states as well as we did, uh, gain a comprehensive understanding of the tobacco industry. Um, we tried to understand the tactics of the tobacco industry. And you can see that picture, although it's, it could be a little bit clearer, that those stands there with the products right next to the, the dips and the snuff and the other stuff, they're all brightly colored, right about kids' height, and they're just actually not supposed to be accessible. They should be behind a counter so the kids can't have access to pick them up and buy them. They're supposed to be doing these things, and they're not. So that's why we're trying to do this tobacco retail licensing, so we can prevent this from easy access to kids, to make sure that they're following the rules so they don't have instant access. And 100% uh, of the surveyed Classic County tobacco retailers sold flavor products designed to appeal to underage customers. So, um, and that's how they get hooked, and then they move on to other products. And I think we kind of went over this already. Um, you know, our, what we're really trying to do is be, um, when we did, as part of this, we did ask, we did actually do retail assessments, and we asked the retailers in the county, um, what do you think about this uh, effort? And 88% of them were supportive of retail licensing. 
So we did make that effort with the retail and just trying to find out, you know, what are your concerns and those kind of things. But they don't seem to think that, you know, they really want help them to be in compliant. They want to make sure that their managers and the people who are working the front are actually selling to the right people. So they're actually participating protection for themselves as well as for the public health. So I think that that's an important aspect to think about is that we did check with the business industry and they're okay with it for the 88% of them. And our license would ensure e-cigarettes and vape juice moved behind the counter as required by law. Prevent new raid tenders within a thousand feet of schools so that you can't walk past them and go, hey, look at that. Uh, eliminates price discounts and coupons and uh, prohibits flavored e-cigarettes and other tobacco products. That would be the essence of Can our... Can I say a few words sure. about this? Um, we have a draft ordinance that we completed with our county attorney in December 2018. We are since working to update it with this new information coming out. So we're going to look at um, flavor, banning flavor to include flavors, to include, include a flavor ban. Um, the FDA has banned flavors in cigarettes, but not other tobacco products. And this would close that loophole. Um, and also flavors and pricing. The, Price discounts are the two ways that uh, the tobacco industry markets to kids or targets to kids. The lower the price, the more able they are to buy it, and the flavors really attract them to and get them started on it. So we're really looking at taking care of those issues also. And it's in draft form, so. And that was in the packet, right? That's in your packet. Um, we have an updated one that we're working on since we've given you the packet. But we don't want to give it back to you until our new ones, um, until our county attorney's gone, gone over it, if that makes sense. And actually, once the county attorney does, then we're going to go through an ordinance process, which is a two-step process similar to other everybody else. And then we would come back and ask you whether or not that was something you could adopt. So, um, Oregon is only one of nine states that don't have tobacco retail licensing uh, statewide. Um, we've actually, Julia spent uh, an inordinate amount of time speaking to Ben and Klamath Lane and Multnomah counties. They're the ones who sort of been piloting this already. From their lessons learned, we've applied those into our ordinance to make sure it's more palatable and enforceable. Um, so I think that you'll, where we are at now, there's our I mean, time. We can't so. read that. Yeah. <laughs> but you can. Yeah. I think we're at the red mark, are we? We are at the red mark that showing what we need to move forward now is approval from Astoria, Warrington, and Seaside. And as soon as we get approval from those three cities, we can go back to our county council and board of commissioners um, to finalize with them. And then we come back to you again and make sure what we came up with is what you still want to work with. So it's quite a process. Yeah. <laughs> Any questions? I have a question. Um, thanks for all of your work on this. I So when I was younger, I lived in central Turkey, and the big push there, of course, was shisha. And now dealing kind of what they call hookah pens. Um, are you guys, it, there's tobacco in those, so I know that young people aren't supposed to be able to buy them until they're 21. But I've heard that there is a little bit of a loophole with that one because of the flavorings and it getting those getting marketed towards young people and two because shisha is technically a different type of tobacco than what we see in cigarettes so i'm just curious if, if that's on the radar um, for 
It is definitely on the radar. Um, what we're doing now is working in the retail setting. That's something that the state and the CDC has said is our most important target to work at, but then also closing those smoke shop loopholes and private lounges that allow hookah and other things like that. That would be a different policy, but yes, we're definitely looking at that. Yeah, thank you. I just, I know it's done a lot of damage, um, yeah. at least in, in Turkey, so for young people, I guess people. And here too. Yeah. It's another cool way to present nicotine yeah. addiction. I do support uh, passing such an ordinance to license tobacco retailers. I'm wondering, how do you go about enforcing that to ensure that they aren't selling to minors? Because we've now got a law saying that you can't buy tobacco if you're, is it under 21 now? Um, but yet, 74% according to the, your information um, right. of youths are getting their baby products that way. So I'm glad that retailers are supportive, but how do we enforce that effectively? Well, the, the important part of the tobacco retail licensing it puts the onus on the manager owner of that retail that when we do our checks, and they're not going to be unannounced checks, similar to how we do the food service program. We do unannounced checks to make sure that everything they're serving is safe, right? So we would go and follow a checklist of those things, and then if we find things out of compliance, we can give them a warning, followed by more stiff penalties, and then if they do enough of those, you know, reading the ordinance, it can be up until removing your license, so you can't sell it at all. So that would be their incentive, is to, they would lose a major revenue stream if they were to lose your license. So, in fact, it does help them maintain that if they do what they're supposed to do. So that's something the health department has the uh, personnel to do? Yeah. That's great. Thank well, that, that's if we pass the ordinance. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, that's great. The license fee will go to cover those costs. Right. Okay. So, yeah, and I do want to point out that we're putting the finishing touches on the tobacco retailer assessment that we did. You have the draft report in your packet, but I didn't get it in the slideshow. Yeah, because I had to send that off before. Um, I was particularly taken by the graphic you had in your presentation of the. Uh, the, the suits the tobacco industry execs saying we believe that cigarette smoking is not addictive. I'd love to see that same graphic with a slug line under it that says these are the these are the guys who are trying to make you think that vaping is cool. Are they? Yeah, that's true. Right. Same people. Uh, unfortunately, that graphic is um, familiar to some of us that are older. <laughs> Yeah. And that would that doesn't have meaning for the younger generation. Well, there's still the guys trying to tell that was from, school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's from 1998. Yeah. Uh, by the way, part of the enforcement too, part of your checking would be like sort of sting operations that people buy underage. Yeah, we can do decoys. That'd be part of our process. Kind of, yeah. kind of catch them red-handed, yep. uh, doing that. Um, I'm just we'll, we'll, I think it's interesting with this new law that's 21 to buy, but you can you can have, be in possession at 18. Right. That's a funny one to me. So you know who's buying it for the 18 year olds? Yeah, that's a good question. So. Yep. Well, though the 18 year olds can probably buy it online, and I think that's the interesting thing too. I, I did a quick I went online real quickly, and it took me no time 
to, I went and did everything except buy. click buy in a matter of moments to have the stuff sent to my house. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's that easy. And, mm -hmm. and though I am completely behind you on this effort, uh, that's still a problem that needs to be addressed at a, at a higher level. I'm an ex-smoker. I picked up my first cigarette when I was 10 years old. Um, people didn't care. They left cigarettes laying around the house. I could, at 11 years old, I was going into Sages and Cannon Beach and going up to the machine and putting my money in with somebody sitting at the counter and buying cigarettes. Um, so this is sounding as easy as that was. And, um, but I couldn't hide it. You know, I had to really hide the smoke. At least yeah. I had to hide the smoke then. But I mean, this really, really, when I first saw your first presentation, hearing about and knowing that this stuff is nearly odorless, mm -hmm. and um, you, you talked about them smoking in classrooms yeah. and getting away with it, mm -hmm. and then the whole concept, anybody even thinking that nicotine isn't one of the most addictive substances out there in the world, again, being an ex-smoker, five or six times attempting to quit before I could finally quit. And they were hard. They were really hard. So I understand that. And to just make it this easy for kids, just, it's insane. I'm actually feeling incensed, and I don't get feeling incensed very often. So, well, we didn't mean for that. Uh, you better. certainly <laughs> Well, no, not to just not have my support. <laughs> okay. So you're just looking for a general general endorsement as you go to yeah. propose the ordinance at the county. We don't, Mr. Henning's card, there's no need for us to have a, a vote, right, because we're not approving anything at the council level. We're just giving our, I mean. Are you going to have a motion to support the concept or not? Could we have a motion? Sure, I'd like to make a motion to support the county's efforts to uh, regulate and uh, license tobacco purveyors. I'll second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Well, thanks very much for your uh, presentation tonight. Thank, thank, thank you. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. Yeah. You bet. Uh, next is reports of counselors. We'll start at the far uh, mind of my left. Uh, Councilor Rock. Party. Uh, well, since our last council meeting, we got a couple, but they're a little longer than normal. Uh, since our last council meeting, I met with uh, Ron Maxted, who I see just walked into the room and learned about an event coming up next week, on uh, Wednesday, July 24th, that uh, touches both on homelessness and workforce, workforce housing. Uh, Dan Bryant, who's with Square One Villages in Eugene, will be speaking in a story about their experience in creating tiny house villages over the past seven years. Uh, Mr. Bryant will be speaking at the First United Methodist Church at 11th and Franklin at 6.30 p.m. And that event is open to the public. Um, I had the honor of having dinner with Dr. Larry Boza last week, known to many pet owners over the many years as Pete, and now mostly retired. Pete was the man behind Columbia Veterinary Hospital in Astoria, and he is the personification of altruism. Pete took care of animals, he took care of their people, and money was never his motivator. He also was a teacher, and many of our other vets in the area that we go and see today were trained under Pete. And I just think Pete deserves a shout out for uh, what a good human being he was and how many of us he helped by taking care of our animals. 
And I also enjoyed being among the historians, including our, his honor, the mayor, who got to welcome Paul Benoit back home, uh, a surprise event planned by his wife, Connie. Paul has just retired, for those of you who don't know him, as city manager of Piedmont, California. He served here as community development director and later as city manager in Astoria, and he accomplished an amazing amount. He was the determined, persistent, driving force behind the development of our river walk and river trail, uh, the abandonment of the railroad right away, the cleanup of the old plywood mill site and the development of Mill Pond Village. Uh, he thought he and Connie were just taking a walk along the river walk when he was ambushed uh, by his welcome home party. Mm -hmm. So it's great to have Paul back in town. He kept his house um, and always knew he was coming back and now he is. That's it. Thank you, Councilor West. Well, for once, I don't have a lot to report. I feel like I usually have way too much. Um, I had a little bit of downtime these last couple of weeks, and so it gave me a chance to get caught up on a lot. Um, I actually went over the housing study again and have had continued some really good conversations um, with ODOT and some fellow constituents about traffic concerns. Um, I'm also looking forward to the meeting on the 24th and especially the host meeting on July 25th. Um, there's a Partners in Preservation meeting this Friday, uh, Goonies meeting tomorrow. Um, so I'll probably have more to report <laughs> in a couple of weeks. But um, a lot of positive news too. I was out of town over the weekend to come back to. Uh, including Pastor Bill and the First Presbyterian Church purchasing the downtown building. Um, that, I thought, was really uh, incredible news. There was an article in the Daily A about it that came out um, on July 12th. So uh, he's a man that I respect very much in this community, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens with that. Um, and then affordable housing on the upper units above a lot of the local businesses that I, I care about down below. Um, it sounds like it's going to take some time and some community efforts. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, some Oregon Parks and Rec grant funding that came in to Astoria, which is also uh, really fantastic, some pretty sizable grants. Um, so yeah, just good news and a lot of upcoming Thank you, Councilor Ross. Thank you, Mayor. Um, well, not quite so busy. But I did get to go, we had a fish, there was a fisheries tour, and um, Council Governor and myself got to attend that. You probably have a few words to say about that, so I'll, I'll leave that mostly to you. It, um, this is the second one I've been on, and um, like the forestry tours, you know, it's sort of the industry's opportunity to put its best foot forward and um, show us what they're doing and how they're doing it. And most of it, and it is all good stuff that they show us. I, I think our fisheries are always challenged and, and um, it's always a push and pull and shove to uh, keep the industry alive and working well. We, we had a presentation early on about uh, um, the off-channel uh, fish um, hatcheries, for instance, and, and really speaking strongly about gill netting and, and the efficacy and, and the viability of it, for example. So, uh, and then a lot in between ending up with uh, build your own crab and 
my friend Louis. So that worked out quite nicely. Uh, the other thing, uh, really the only other thing I have, I've got a meet counselor uh, event this coming Saturday at three cups of coffee at nine o'clock. Everybody's welcome. Uh, I'd love to see people there and I'd like, like to take questions and I'd like to hear uh, your concerns. So I will just leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you, Councilor. Councilor Rocca, I was a little concerned the way you were talking about Dr. Goza. That something might have happened to him. Oh, he's, no, no. He's, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's such a great guy, a real uh, humane person. Well, I and I think everybody else on the day has attended the 13th Street Alley ribbon cutting um, oh, about a week and a half ago. And again, if you haven't been down the beautiful new alley, um, I really encourage you to do that. And I thank uh, the artist Andy Sterling for design and the Astoria Downtown Historic District, District Association for getting the funding together to get the alley painted. And as Tom was mentioning, I and about 100 other public officials attended a tour of local fisheries-related businesses last Wednesday, and it was organ organized by the OSU Sea Grant Office, um, Amanda Gladix, who heads that program. And for me, the tour was very informative and underscored how much our local commercial fishing industry adds not only to our economy, and that's significant, but really also to our local culture, and I think sometimes we forget that. But another industry, quote-unquote industry, that adds a great deal to our community is the arts. And I encourage anyone who hasn't done this to participate in a free event. It's the second Saturday of every month from 5 to 8 p.m. downtown. Second Saturday Art Walk, and I like to call it a big rolling party. Um, it's a lot of fun. So. And you'll see just how much the arts adds to our community. And I never cease to be involved. How many more artists are coming here? And I'm not sure where they're living or how they're making ends meet, but I'm really glad that they're here. And finally, I'm looking forward to participating in a walkabout uh, downtown and on the Riverwalk this Wednesday. It will start at 7 p.m. and we'll meet at the Maritime Museum flagpole right outside the museum. It's open to anyone. And our purpose is simply to let everybody know it's safe to be downtown in the evening. There is a perception, perception by some that it's not, and I know the situation is not perfect, that harassment does occur sometimes. But we just want to get out there and let folks know, um, hey, it's a great place to be, and we'll say hi to everyone we see, and um, if anybody would like to participate, come join us. I think uh, Councilor Rock and you uh, are going to be there, and I know David Reed, who's the director of the Astoria Warrants and Area Chamber of Commerce, spearheaded this. That's it. I believe this is a continuation of, a, of an event, of a event that Councilor Rock had participated in about 30 years ago. Not quite that many, but yes, years ago. <laughs> and uh, yeah, David and I have talked a lot, and uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see. It's, it's a different situation was at that time, but I think sometimes being present is the best thing we can do. And it's reassuring to people who may be feeling a little uh, uneasy, and uh, it also gives us a chance to learn. You know, we can talk to the people we encounter on the way and find out what their story is and what might be done to make things better. Thank you. Thanks, Council. Uh, 
so I also had the pleasure of attending the ribbon cutting for the 13th Street Alley, and then a few nights later, I had the pleasure of uh, giving a tour of the alley with one of Astoria's newest residents, uh, Mrs. Jones in the back, my mother. She's in the back by the clock. She's mortified that I pointed her out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, enjoyed the fireworks on Independence Day, and I'd like to thank the Chamber of Commerce, as well as several of our local businesses who footed the bill for those, and the volunteers, very nice. Uh, I also met with uh, Ron Maxted a few weeks ago to get coffee to talk about his project, and uh, I don't know if I'll be at the, the evening event, but I know the next morning you're going to give a presentation at the Homelessness Solutions Task Force. I'll look forward to hearing from you there. Um, last week I missed our work session because I was in Scaboose uh, attending the um, uh, six time a year uh, Columbia Pacific Economic Development uh, and Area Committee on Transportation meeting. Senator uh, Johnson, Betsy Johnson, was there giving a legislative update for this past legislative season which was quite, uh, quite interesting. One of the most important things about participating in that, and, and either, either I or Mr. Estes always goes to Colback, and either I or Mr. Harrington always attends the Area Committee on Transportation, is the relationships we build. Uh, for example, at Colback, the relations we have with um, uh, Melanie Olson of Business Oregon and also Jennifer Purcells of the Regional Solutions Team, um, uh, directly led to our being able to get that $1 million uh, grant for the pollution cleanup on the site of the Astoria Warehousing Company. So it's an important place to uh, just hear what's going on and establish those relationships that can pay dividends in the future. I also wanted to note uh, the Coast Guard Cutter Fur, which de departed our waters uh, last fall, uh, was replaced today by the, the new fresh out of um, dry dock um, and overhaul Coast Guard Cutter Elm. And our own uh, Joanna Wright out of the ship report was able to go out today, uh, just inside the bar, climb the climb Jacob's ladder, and, and ride Elm in, right? Yeah, it was really a boot. So maybe maybe you'll talk about it on, on one of your upcoming radio shows tomorrow. Very good. And then lastly, I just wanted to um, throw a shout out to uh, the police department and fire department. Uh, the fire department yesterday, yesterday, two days ago, I think I was driving home. Just approaching Safeway, uh, saw smoke billowing up. Um, we had just installed a new gas dryer. So Linda immediately thought our house was burning down and, um, and we saw flames shooting out of a car in front of Safeway. And thankfully, I believe no one was injured, but the crew looked like they were doing a, a great job putting that out. Yeah, they did. And then a week ago today, the um, Astoria Police Department, I noted and all I know about it is what I read in the paper, but there's a pedestrian that was hit, and I understand he severed his femoral, femoral artery, and I believe Chief was it, Chief Spalding was one of your officers that was first on scene and applied a tourniquet to stop the arterial bleeding. Yeah, that's correct. That was maybe, maybe come up and tell us quickly about that. Council. Um, yes, last week, I don't remember the exact day, but um, there was an individual who was crossing the lane of traffic down on Marine Drive and uh, a local resident, and he was actually not at the crosswalk at the time, but he was going in between cars, and he uh, avoided several cars, but unfortunately he ended up uh, running into a, a passenger truck. 
um, uh, pretty serious injuries, and as you mentioned, he severed his femoral artery, and he was bleeding fairly profusely. Uh, officers on scene uh, arrived quickly, along with uh, Chief Crutchfield and uh, members of his team, but our uh, Sergeant Chris McNeary was able to apply a tourniquet to the leg, and uh, we believe that was instrumental in the, in the gentleman's survival. Well, I'd like to thank both the Astoria Police Department and Astoria Fire Department for that excellent work. Thank you. Thank you.
the proposed ordinance. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Is there any discussion? Ms. Brooks, may we have a second reading? An ordinance amending public contracting regulations for the city of Astoria. And could we have a motion to approve? I so move. We have your second. I'll second it. Okay, and that's a, uh, to approve the ordinance amending public contracting regulations. And uh, roll call, please, Ms. Brooks. Councilman Herman? Aye. Councilman Brownson? Aye. Aye. Item 7B is a salary resolution establishing basic compensation plan cost of living wage adjustments. So, staff positions and the associated compensation for those employees are detailed in the city's salary resolution. Uh, this is an item that is brought to the city council uh, routinely after uh, the beginning of each uh, fiscal year and that's done to be able to implement uh, any uh, needed changes uh, based upon starting new fiscal year. So the proposed resolution before you might implement changes retroactive to the classes uh, noted in the memo that's retroactive back uh, to the beginning of the fiscal year. That includes with the fire employee group, um, which uh, is uh, the fire department um, um, employee group which had a, uh, a contract approved by the city council just recently, but this is putting in place the uh, wage adjustments beginning July 1st, 2019. Additionally, uh, this would also address the fire management uh, employees uh, retroactive based upon the uh, contract, uh, which is recently approved, uh, there is a, um, a buffer which is in place between the fire management and also the, uh, the, the unionized employees. Uh, there is also an adjustment uh, in the public works employee group um, based upon an existing contract, and this will be retroactive to July 1st, Additionally, for uh, management and confidential employees, a limited uh, possibility adjustment, uh, which would be retroactive uh, to July 1st. And then lastly, our parks and recreation, uh, as well as our part-time uh, seasonal uh, employees, we need to adjust uh, the uh, wages specifically for Oregon minimum wage increases. Uh, which are uh, which went into effect July 1st, 2019. I would note there was a typo in the resolution, um, and we provided you with a revised copy, and the mayor has the uh, corrected uh, signature copy. It's recommended tonight that council adopts the salary resolution in between uh, Ms. Brooks and myself before I answer any questions. Well, thank you very much for all your work putting all this together, Ms. Brooks. Thank you, and department heads as well. Reflects a lot of work over the last many months. Any council discussion? I just have one question. Um, since I haven't been through the process of granting wage adjustments before, I support these adjustments. Um, I'm just curious, how does the city budget absorb these wage adjustments? 
So each year we look at the um, resources that we're going to be are going to be coming in for each fund, and primarily in general funds. Um, we have to prioritize our expenditures. So we, um, the finance department, actually makes the, all the calculations on the wages. We look at where people are currently at. Um, what the contracts that are currently in place call for as far as increases. We look at um, the benefit increases for the year and kind of look at all the variables and we see what we can bear and sustain. So it's not only what we can afford in the current year, but what we can afford in years going out because the numbers build off of each other year after year after year. So it is quite a process that we start beginning in December, um, and we are projecting out into the future um, for several months. And we work collectively with department heads and the city manager to balance that budget. <laughs> Thank you. And Mayor, if I may also add, you know, with a uh, situation where we had specific contract employees, uh, those are, um, that we're able to uh, use through the budgetary process already. Uh, so um, that's, you know, that's, that's also part of the equation you know, that you know, we're looking at you know, what contracts are in place and, and what has uh, already been negotiated and approved by city council. Thank you, Mr. Estes. Well, I'd like to make a motion to approve this salary resolution. Establishing a basic compensation plan for the employee of the city of Astoria, and establishing regulations for the placement of present employees within the wage and salary schedules provided. I am happy to second that. Roll call, Chief Spaulding. Councilor Herman. Aye. Councilor Rousey. Aye. Councilor West. Item 7C is authorization to award contract for the development of Ocean View Cemetery Facility Master Plan. So several months ago, the City Council authorized staff to secure proposals uh, for the Ocean View Cemetery Facility Master Plan. One of the adopted goals of the Council for this fiscal year is to explore options to enhance long-term financial stability of the Parks Department, including but not limited to a facility master plan. So uh, our park staff have, uh, have prepared it, requested a proposal and issued it. Three firms uh, submitted responses, um, as noted in the memo, and tonight is recommended the city council award the Ocean View Cemetery Facility Master Plan contract in the amount of $87,945.50 to Reason Associates. I would note that Parks Director Tim Williams is going to speak a bit more about this and answer any questions that the council may have. Thank you, Mr. Williams. Yeah, good evening, Mayor and City Councilors. Happy to be here tonight to uh, present this uh, cemetery master plan to you, uh, just in general. It's one of your goals for the for the whole city to achieve in the next year or yet next two years to accomplish a master plan to make the cemetery more sustainable. But I just want to kind of give you some background in in, in this uh, at the Ocean View Cemetery. The Ocean View Cemetery sits on 40 acres of active uh, burials and cremains. 
and adjacent to it's 30 acres, which is undeveloped at this time. There are approximately 12,700 uh, plots occupied by full burial and cremains. There's 13,000 roughly unoccupied, so we're about 50% full on that 40 acres. The Olson Review Cemetery is maintained by a, a part-time seasonal worker. And I must say that the, through testimony of others, that the cemetery has never looked better in, than in the past five years. We've, we didn't, haven't had many complaints at all over, over the, the course of the last few months. We've done some things out there to help, help, uh, help the customer, help those that are in mourning with some water that's made available. Our irrigation system has expired, so it's, it's tough to turn the water on and lose all that water through the soil. So uh, we're hoping this master plan will help us to identify some resources for that. In 2016, the, the Parks and Recreation Department developed a Parks and Recreation Master Plan. And in that master plan, it recommended that a, a cemetery master plan be conducted in future years. In 2018, the City Council approved uh, the Parks and Recreation Department to seek out a uh, vendor or a firm who would produce that master plan. Of course, you know it got pushed because of the swimming pool fixtures that we had to put in place. So we have it in place for the, the year 2019 to 2020 to complete by uh, January 1st. So what will this master plan do? Well, it's really a community effort. It's, a, it's an opportunity for a community to come together with this firm to facilitate some of the solutions with their expertise, identifying what kind of resources are available, what's our inventory, what are some best practices in maintaining cemeteries are there out there, what are the best ways to reduce your water expenses, uh, what kind of amendments do you put in the soil to keep it nice and green. Uh, the best part of, of this uh, is it's such a great place to have uh, you don't go out and mourn and just to, to reflect with your loved one that's buried out there. Uh, and some of the, the strategies that we've put forth is, we, is, is that part-time seasonal person out there working. I think that reduces 90% of the, of the complaints because they see us out there as a city trying to make, do our best to keep the cemetery up to good condition. And, it, and it's paid off. And, and doing innovative things like having water out there that people can bail water out to, to uh, feed the grass in and around those, those tombstones. It's really a, a great uh, uh, resource for, for those people to, to serve their loved ones. Also, as, as City Manager Estes mentioned, that uh, we, we had three uh, firms that bidded or put in proposals for uh, the, the master plan developing that. Uh, the Lee, Lees and Associates came in at 87, just over almost $88,000 for their master plan. Um, Cemetery Resources Planning Alliance came in at $187,000 even. And we had LF Sloan Consulting Group that came in at 39,000. We had interest in my, with Meisner and Associates 
and then also with American Cemetery Mortuary Consultants, but they never turned in any proposals at, that, at this time. The, the reason we selected Lees and Associates simply because of their, their proposal. Their proposal shined so much more above and beyond uh, the other competitors. Um, they, they are not foreign to uh, uh, doing work in Oregon. Can you just pause for a second? Is it possible? Okay. stood out amongst all the other two that we had submitted. Lees and Associates had a clear, clear vision and the experience of cemeteries that they have worked on in the past. Familiar with the, with the story and across the whole state of Oregon, they've done uh, strategic planning. They have strong ties to, to the community with uh, people that actually work in this community and serve, serve in this community. They're the, they displayed cutting edge of cemetery uh, maintenance and management techniques in their proposal. Their proposal also fell between the $50,000 and $100,000 allotment that we decided that, that master plan should fall within based off a study. Have outstanding experience with laws, rules, and, and uh, regulations associated with cemeteries across the country. Um, their timeline was very clear and precise on meeting the goal of, of, of getting this, this master plan implemented within six to eight months. Um, their experience with similar and, and uh, sized municipal and historic cemeteries was impeccable. Uh, measures up against Lewiston, Idaho, who has a, a cemetery that's similar in size and has some of the same issues and uh, these and associations did that one. The, the best part about this master plan is the involvement of the community. It'll, it'll hold host meetings with the city council, uh, with, uh, with boards and commissions that are involved with this, city staff such as the Parks and Recreation Department and the Finance Department. It'll also have the stakeholders and meetings that involve the citizens of Astoria, Warrington, seaside, those areas, but also those funeral homes and death care industries that are, that are in this vicinity. Uh, so we're excited to uh, get this started. We, uh, if, if approved, we'll start this process immediately. So I just wanted to let you know that, that it's, it's going to be a great experience for all of us here. Well, thank you, and I, I think it's uh, long overdue, and something that's going to really benefit the community in the long term. Are they going to specifically look at the mausoleum? I know there's been some issues with uh, who's responsible for the maintenance of that facility as it deteriorates because of private ownership. Yes, that's in the scope of work that it's been. And will they also look at the pros and cons of the alternative uses of the 30 unused acres, such as 
you know, and there have been proposals in the past to sell some of that property. Will they look at those options? Yes, that's also in the proposal. Great. Thank you. And also, um, and I'm really glad we're at this point. Uh, as, as long as we get the cemetery in the city, we really need to find a way to uh, make it the best operation possible and, and with the resources we have. I'm wondering, does any of this uh, touch with the Pioneer Cemetery up there as well? Well, that, well, that there? was basically not completely abandoned, but in 1887, that was the, the Hillside Cemetery, and they right. moved all those burials, those those burials out to the, what is currently the Ocean View Cemetery. There's a few uh, headstones in Pioneer, but it, it will look at the history of how it evolved out to Ocean View to find out what other areas they can gain more knowledge in producing this master plan. Yeah, it might be a side issue. I'm just always curious about what the city, how the city, how I should be thinking about that cemetery up there because it's like a non-entity. It exists and that's about it. And um, I'm not sure there's more we can do with it. I have no idea what that means, but I'm not sure yeah. if that it doesn't fall in the scope of this. Yes, it and, and, and it, it, it'll be all put out into the public for public input right. as well. Thank you. I, I do support this, and I'm glad to hear the public's going to be involved. I wasn't aware of that, so that's great that you said there will be public meetings. Great. That, that is correct. A minimum of 1.5 hours, they say. Okay. Um, I'm just curious, why do you think the bids came in at such differing amounts? Any idea? It, it's hard to have that barometer. You know, sometimes firms just put in a, a strong, high bid just to see if they can get it. And then there's others that just don't have the, the resources or qualifications to produce a, a, a master plan that we would like here in Astoria. And you feel like the Lees and Associates bid of almost $88,000 is reasonable for the work scope? I believe so, yes. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Uh, just a question, um, and this is, I think we're all excited about this and to move forward with this. Um, is what's the easiest way, because I wasn't aware that the public was going to be involved as well, and I think that's a really wise decision, because there's going to be a lot of people who have their um, late relatives or ancestors buried there. Is What's the easiest way to find out? Is Parks and Rec going to do Facebook events or is there going to be something sent out about the meetings just to notify constituents as far as when those are happening? Yes, yeah, so we'll use social media. We'll, we'll use different leaders in different uh, communities such as Warrington to try to get this word out the best we can. Okay. We'll, al we'll also put it in the newspaper for those public hearings and public meetings. That, uh, and, we're, and we're really hoping that the, the Parks Board will, will be heavily involved with this to try to get that out to their constituency as well. I think the newspaper would be great because obviously not, you know, not everybody uses social media, but it sounds like any way that you can get the word out Yeah, I think if you look at the cemetery's Facebook page, it's kind of quiet. It's a little quiet. That's why I was asking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
you. <laughs> On that note, I move that we authorize staff <laughs> to award the contract for development of the Ocean View Cemetery Facilities Master Plan. I will second that. All in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? That ends our formal agenda. Is there any uh, public comment tonight? If you would, any member of the public would like to speak to an item that's not been covered, you yes. may come to the podium, give your name and address, and we'll have three minutes. Thank you. Rick Bowers, 357 Commercial Street. And I'm here to talk about the uh, potential code changes related to warming shelters. And my understanding, well, I know last year the Planning Commission started work on this. Joan Hartman might have been part of that. And it was put on hold, and I've been told by at least one of the commissioners that it's going to resume in the fall. And I was looking at the, uh, the meeting notes from their work sessions, and one of the things that really jumped out at me is there's nothing in the comprehensive plan to really guide this. There's no mention of shelters, homelessness, anything like that in the comprehensive plan. So I also looked at the Astoria Warming Center conditional use permit, the original one, and the, uh, Kevin Cronin, the uh, development director at that time, community development director, basically said the same thing. There's no guidance in the plan for warming shelters. So it occurs to me that this is kind of backwards to develop code without anything in the overall vision. So I was kind of looking to see what other cities did. And I ran across three cities that, sure enough, have updated their comprehensive plan. And then I'm assuming, to go to the detail, but develop the code underneath it. But they develop the policies and, and, and that sort of thing. And if it's in your purview, I, I assume this is really happening. But I would recommend putting it on hold until the comprehensive plan is updated. And I glanced briefly at the housing study. The, January draft for the county that did have just at least a couple of paragraphs on homelessness. And that was kind of the stimulus for updating the comprehensive plans in these other cities. So I would just really recommend that approach and not do code that we really are trying to fit it into something that doesn't exist. So I've got fuller explanation. I'll hand these out and uh, there you go. In here, we'll pass them out. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Bowers. Are there any other uh, public comments? Please. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. I'm kind of, this is, uh, my name is Deborah O'Donnell. And I live at 814 Kensington Avenue. <clears throat> and uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, I just was on my Facebook page and someone mentioned that Grocery Outlet was going to try to get across the street from the co-op. And for me, I just got a little upset about it just because of the traffic and situation and also I'm really concerned about all the runoff from the car pollution right into the ocean. And I just don't think Grocery Outlet is uh, a good fit for the character of Astoria. I've only been here five years, but my mom was a boss, and she, her, I had family roots here. And 
I really love Astoria. I, I've lived in probably 15 or 20 different small towns, large cities, and urban and country areas, and I just love Astoria. I think it has a great balance, and, and I hope that we can maintain that and maybe have grocery outlet go to Warrington. <laughs> Or somewhere where there's a lot of businesses, where Home Depot and Costco, and that seems that's my that's my deep comment. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Are there other comments? Uh, Mayor, uh, if I could, please. So noted and uh, also recorded in the minutes. Hi, uh, my name is Ron Maxted at 3596th Street, and uh, thank you, uh, Councilman Roca and uh, Wes, for mentioning this upcoming event, and Mayor Jones also. Uh, the significance of this event, I think uh, a lot of credit needs to go to you folks because you created the homelessness solutions task force and I really feel that this has come out of that. This is one of the things of, of uh, being able to network with our community. The significance of the sponsorship is that not only the homelessness solutions task force but we have Clatsop Community Action, Clatsop Behavioral Health Care, the Warming Center, the United Methodist Church, the Filling Empty Bellies, River Folk, and Helping Hands are all coming together sponsoring this event. And the intent of this event is to create, increase public awareness on what can or could be done uh, by uh, listening to the presentation that that is coming from uh, Dan Bryant from uh, Square One. Uh, villages, they have been successful, and so uh, the intent is just to bring attention to what are some of the uh, helpful solutions. The actual presentation will be 25 minutes with a slide presentation, and then it will be questions and answers, and uh, there will be a similar presentation, I think, for the task force. Um, and some of the questions that could be asked could uh, Clatsop County do something with this information. Could we here in this county uh, create a place that uh, we could reduce the number of homelessness in our alleys and walkways and um, uh, show compassion for those people that are less fortunate? So thank you. Thank you. Are there other public comments tonight? <clears throat> Any new business from councilors? Well, Mr. Mayor, I, I should mention that I did do uh, an interview with uh, Mr. Bryant, and uh, so that will be on KMUF on the 12th of August at 9.30 a.m. Great, thanks. With that, thank you for coming tonight. We're adjourned.